Fab. So uh, we are so excited to be joined by today's guest. Uh, he served as an MP from 2005 to 2017. Uh, before that, he was a solicitor specialising in criminal law. He's currently the Prime Minister's Deputy Special Envoy for Freedom of Religion or Belief. It's a bit of a mouthful. Uh, and is the Parliamentary Director of Conservative Christian Fellowship. Uh, David Burrows, thank you so much for joining us today. Great pleasure. Lovely to be here. And it's a busy day in Parliament. It's the, as we're recording, it's the sort of the crescendo of the um, Conservative leadership internal election. There's a bell. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? That's just indicating whatever happens in Parliament on any day, there's prayers that are just been announced that are beginning this day in Parliament, which is fantastic. Um, Do you, with all of this sort of chaos going on, in, in, in the Conservative Party at the moment in Parliament. Do you, do you still miss it or do you think actually, do you know what, this is a good time to have a bit of a breather and, and be out of it? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, obviously I've been out, out of it in terms of frontline elected politics uh, since 2017 and if one thinks not just in the last weeks or months but those years, what's gone on mm-hmm. uh, and how that's actually ravaged Parliament in terms of relationships, leaders, uh, uh, politics has changed in many ways and how people have do politics so looking from a distance I've appreciated that level of distance um, it's meant there's been a role to play not least uh, in the parliamentary director role probably almost more of a pastoral role in some ways many a former colleague has wanted to have a coffee or uh, just um, just talk about the challenges uh, so yeah so there's certainly there's a relief there's respite not just for me for my family um, but nevertheless there's also uh, something deep within me that uh, would want to be part of things, whether at the centre or at different places, to um, to see what's to support what's going on and try and be a Christian influence in in Parliament and government. Yeah. So we we mentioned then, so you're no longer an MP, and I'm at risk. I've already I've I've let you know I was going we were going to talk about this because who knows how sensitive this may or may not be, but. Um, so you were an MP up until 2017 and you, you lost your seat uh, in the election in 2017. Um, and I, I remember, I was thinking about this on the train in this morning, I remember texting my dad on the morning of that 2017 election and saying, what do you reckon is going to happen today? And him saying, Theresa May, 40 seat majority. Um, so when that didn't happen, it certainly surprised me. Did it come as a surprise to, to you? Yeah, it did. I mean, it shouldn't have done in a way, uh, because when I was elected in 2005, it was a surprise. And then for Southgate has been known for its surprises. Whatever side of the political fence you are, it was the in the top 10 favourite BBC moments of all time, seeing Michael Patillo lose uh, in that landslide Labour. I was yeah. there, I was there at the count. I've grown up in the area. and So I've lived and breathed the ups and downs of Enfield Southgate <laughs> politics. And when I got elected in 2005, um, it was a surprise. It was the biggest swing in the country from Labour to Conservatives and was off the radar of, of in that Michael Howard election, which didn't really do much for the Conservatives, but there was the, the one or two wins and mine was one of them. So there's always been surprises and, and politics is full of surprises, hey, you know, to this day. Uh, and so there's been, uh, so I grew up in the politics and then lived uh, on the fact that one has to hold it as lightly as one can and realise one is that sort of stewardship role that's holding it and it could well be taken away from you and passed on to others. So so yes, at that particular time, you know, the surprise was actually it was a snap election. Mm-hmm. So so in ordinary we were planning things and doing things 
for the prospect of a fixed-term parliament, which would have had another two years to run. So to, to suddenly have an election campaign, which, you know, was, was a surprise, and obviously it was called as a snap election in order for Theresa May to secure a significant majority. And so, yeah, to lose was, was surprising. I mean, it, having said that, during the election campaign, uh, when our manifesto came out and there were challenges and issues, it became... Uh, less of a surprise. So, so yeah, but um, it's a brutal business politics. You know, you, it's you know, the others have said it's been said quite famously. You know, all political careers end in failure, and that's to a large extent true. And so, I imagine in the wake of that, did you take a holiday? Did you take some time off to recover? Yeah. And then now you're um, involved in freedom of religion. Yeah. How did that unfold? Yeah. So so. Um, so thankfully, there was a holiday that was booked because actually, you, you do, you know, people may think. In fact, people struggle to understand what what happens when MPs lose. Many a uh, relatively informed person locally and in our church or just around has, has expected you to continue in a role that you're always in this sort of shadowlands of of an MP shadow or something that you are still in Parliament or that there's uh, a huge parachute that uh, there used to be the case, uh, but the but the public taxpayers took that away after the expenses scandals. So, so there is you get sort of uh, two, three months, depending on how long you've served in Parliament, to financially um, get a softer landing. But that means what next? And so there is that insecurity uh, of there's that feeling of oh, you know I you know I had this to do this I wish there's unfinished business. So there's that you know that that pain, and I did feel that part of it particularly of just oh, I wish I've only. You know, Lord, what now? Why? Um, but nevertheless, you know, I always um, during my time before getting into politics and say this to others is, you know, pray, pray, and yes, to be in Parliament, to be, but also pray to be out. You know, our Lord knows best, and He's sovereign, and we should be ready not to be in as much as we desperately want to be in. And and um, sometimes it's better for those who aren't quite so desperate to go in to be in, actually, <laughs> for the Lord to use with his strength and wisdom and power rather than I. So trying to keep in step by his spirit is the thing. And I had to learn that uh, quite brutally at that time, and our family did. But thankfully, there was a holiday booked. Um, I'll just say one little thing. There was a holiday booked to uh, go to Italy, because I think, actually, particularly Janet, who's much sensible than me, my wife, she, we thought financially, really, should we do that this time? But we did it. We went off as a family. We've got a quite large family. Um, and um, and I remember we went, we took a, a very hot, we've had the heat, haven't we? It was a very hot, very, very hot in Venice, but it should be hot in Venice. It should be so hot in London. Should, and I remember that there was, um, I was wearing this sort of striped T-shirt and the gondoliers were there and they were queuing up together and I just sort of queued up with them and uh, they took a picture of the family of me just, you know, queuing up for a job. You know, <laughs> he needs a job, maybe as a gondolier. But thankfully, yeah, I came back and... Um, and what then happened next was actually Fiona Bruce MP, a wonderful Christian MP from Congleton, um, she um, wanted me to continue on the causes of concerns, not least around strengthening families. So we worked together around, particularly with conservative parliamentarians, around the strengthening families agenda, developing champions for families, and, and then particularly supporting the development and rollout of family hubs. And so that was a particular focus of attention until. Uh, Fiona was then appointed as the Prime Minister's Special Envoy for Freedom of Religion or Belief, and it's a long title for her as well. And then um, she basically went to the Prime Minister that we still have, uh, Boris Johnson, uh, to say, yes, I'll be uh, the envoy, but on a condition that you have De David as my deputy. Um, and then eventually that got formalised. 
takes a while. Uh, those things not least in the Foreign Office to get rolled out. And and then so we've been doing that together, sort of a um, two for the price of one kind of thing of one of, of you know trying to do what we can, which we can talk about perhaps a bit later about about that role. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't we talk about that now? So what? Tell us a bit about that role. What is that role? What do you do on a kind of day to day basis? Yeah. So so the. I mean, it feels like day to day. Although it's a, for my for me, it's a part time Fiona. She has to juggle it with everything else. But particularly more recently, it's been fairly full on because the um, you know thankfully the government have uh, uh, taken it on as a key priority, as a human right priority. That was recognised, and it was a very much a cross party concern and uh, campaign to to get a, an envoy, an ambassador, effectively. Uh, for freedom of religion or belief. It's an in, about in the international human right. And it means that we are together holding the feet of the Foreign Office to the fire to make sure, are you, you know, when you're advocating out in countries of concern, it may be, you know, countries like Nigeria, where there's obviously sensitive relationships in India, there's issues as well that need to be carefully handled. Are you properly uh, within informed uh, advocating for those who are discriminated, marginalised, persecuted for their faith. Now, it may well be Christians, because um, they are the most persecuted globally, but it could well be those from other faiths, or indeed those with a, a non-religious belief. It is freedom, religion, or belief, and it's basically advocating on behalf of others in many ways. And that's the, the beauty of the right, because uh, it is a fundamental human right for everyone, that freedom to believe, that, that freedom to choose, that freedom of conscience that you know means a freedom to... Uh, to hold and manifest a faith, to change your religion. So, so we we wanted to make sure that this, when I was in Parliament, actually, it was referred by the establishment of an all-party parliamentary group on international freedom, religion, and belief as an orphaned right. When it wasn't really held or owned by any particular uh, country enough or internationally, other rights maybe, but not this. But it's really grown, and actually, on an all-party basis, it's now the largest uh, APPG mm-hmm. in Parliament. You know, well over 150, which is fantastic. And so you get the Open Doors World Watch List event where, you know, MPs are queuing up, the, you know, there's 90 or so will will join that, not least because constituents are encouraging them to. But it's, it's excellent. There's been a real momentum of growth. So we're trying to keep that momentum going. And so we had this conference two weeks ago where you know, a thousand delegates came from 100 countries, 30 ministers, really trying to make sure this is, this is owned not just by those that traditionally get get that right but also countries that are on a journey you know to develop freedoms and and uh, and we want to make sure that at the heart of it is what for any good society needs is that uh, freedom of uh, religion or belief and so so we're doing that Fiona chairs uh, an international alliance of envoys that are doing a similar thing and we're trying to grow that and develop it so it's very exciting to be part of that and yes to be perhaps distracted but also focused on some international uh, political issues uh, rather than so much the domestic issues. It's, it's really interesting you say it's the, the biggest APPG in Parliament. I didn't know that. That's, that's really interesting. I, so I had the privilege of meeting um, a couple of delegates um, from the conference mm. last week, some um, people from Mexico, and they were telling me, uh, and Kat, my boss, um, about the persecution some Christians are facing in, in Mexico. And I, I consider myself a, a broadly well-informed person on, on these issues and I literally never heard of of the particular issues that they, they were bringing up and do you think I guess my question in reflection on that is do you think people the average person is aware of the kind of um, the level and the nature of 
persecution of, of religion that is going on around the world. And I suppose then, what do you think, how, how should we as Christians respond to, to that when we, when we do hear yeah. these details, which can, I think, be quite confronting and despairing even? Yeah. So, so I've, uh, as I've gone through the, my time in Parliament actually, have um, been surprised by two things. Firstly, the level, the global level of persecution and also by the level of ignorance and lack of awareness and lack of action and deeds, particularly from the Christian community who have no excuse for not being concerned about persecution given our faith was ingrained and throughout the Bible it's full of persecution and you know we, you can just see, see through every most chapters and pages issues around persecution and discrimination and at least for Lord Jesus Christ born into persecution died in extreme persecution and the early church you know formed and grained and we must expect um, persecution um, so all so all that makes me surprised when Christians aren't really onto this. Not just for Christ, not just for Christians though, and that's the issue as well. But for our in you know, a loving neighbour, for our neighbour um, to be concerned about others and others who are persecuted. So so there's a there's a there's a there's a theology there that we should I think grab hold of better. Um, but then there's a practical issue that you know uh, eight out eight out of ten um, of the world's population face fairly high levels of discrimination and persecution for what they believe. And that's, that's a global issue of across all faiths. And it happens to be the case also that Christians are in particularly the firing line. Um, you know, Open Doors estimate, it's probably a guesstimate, 360 million uh, Christians are in that high level of discrimination and persecution. And you know, if you're going to put that down into numbers, you know, one in seven of all Christians are facing such a persecution. And then if we were to have this um, chat for two hours, um, that would be the average time when a Christian is murdered in the world, so for their faith. So so it's huge, significant, and you know, Christians have no excuse theologically and also just from a fact that it's happening hugely, should uh, be in the front line for their brothers and sisters, but also advocating on behalf of others, you know, on behalf of um, Muslims, Rohingya Muslims, or let's say Uyghurs, you know, in China, Myanmar, just um, for uh, you know, for uh, Ahmadi Muslims in Pakistan, for uh, for Hindus um, who are facing persecution um, in uh, places like uh, Pakistan, for or for uh, Baha'is in Iran, for um, you know, for humanists in uh, Nigeria or in other places who, you know, for Jehovah's Witnesses in, in Russia, it, the list goes on and it's important, you know and it, even whatever we think of those particular beliefs or faiths um, and we can, you know, it's how we respectfully disagree and um, show dignity and difference of, of faith and belief, at, but be advocating for their right to hold those beliefs um, and that, that is, we're seeing though those are foundations of lots of conflicts around the world um, and you know, whilst religion can sometimes be a problem, can be instrumentalised. Look at Ukraine, how it's being used, the church is being used there mm. to uh, perpetuate conflict. We need to see the answers to go beneath that to a, a, a fundamental right of people to believe and, um, and manifest their faith. Because the, you know, when those conflicts happen, there are um, the, the, the victims are often those of faith that you're seeing awful. Sign of people being killed, yes, as well as 
you know, place of worship being obliterated because people want to remove identity and remove uh, people's culture in that way, um, as well as you see restrictions that have already been going on, for example, in Ukraine in the you know, separatist areas where there's restrictions on licenses, people who can um, you know, be in churches. That was happening already and almost, we're trying to say, let's look at the earning warning signs to avoid these awful atrocities. To And it's often when there's these restrictions on freedoms that are happening that then should be red, red warnings to us all and we're trying to ensure the government and other governments get there early to try and prevent the awful um, outworkings of of intolerance. What does what does progress look like in this area? Yeah. Because it strikes me, you know, what can Britain do other than say it's really bad that there's persecution going yeah. on in in X country? Yeah. So it's a good, really good question because sometimes uh, we find ourselves doing a lot and of calling out and expressing concern and con- condemnation, and that does need to happen because I don't think enough calling out has happened um, uh, when there's a lot going on in the world we don't call out these atrocities and these um, human rights abuses so that's so one is to try and galvanize more people who are just on it and concerned and aware and you know Parliament's been a good example of that another trying to encourage other countries to do that there's this alliance of envoys who are on this issue like Fiona and so we Bruce. So we're encouraging the growth of the number of countries who are signing up to this. So it's now getting up to 40, was 25 not so long ago. We want to really expand that. But also, as you suggested, we want to encourage others on a journey who previously may not have shown that respect for this fundamental right and seeing them showing signs of that. So, you know, there's lots not right, but places like uh, Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan, there's just early signs that they are beginning to change their legislation and constitution and um, some other uh, freedoms around education as well. That they're showing signs in in a place like Bahrain are really interested in trying to have more inclusive, tolerant, respectful education. I'm not saying any of these countries have got it all sorted, but but they're just expressing willingness. And the conference was really about that to try and build these coalitions of interest and um, and so. But where, where I think is we're from the UK perspective. One of the things that came out of this Truro review, which Truro did a review some three years ago that was particularly focused around the persecution of Christians and, rec- and, try- and recognising that actually perhaps the Foreign Office has got, had, had a something of a blind spot to the persecution of Christians because of all our historical past and relationships with the countries and almost there was a, there was a concern of not calling out Christian persecution apart from calling out other persecution and that's shifted a bit and this true review has now been published and three years ago and there's been an independent review that said it's making progress, a lot more to come. But one of the areas that's where there is progress is like is on religious literacy and trying to help our diplomats as well as others to better understand the contextual issues going on in these countries of concern, to understand what it means to be a Christian, um, what it means to be a Hindu, Muslim and other faiths. and and. And that, I think, is, has been a sign of progress, that that's been adopted by the government, that it's been rolled out and, and may indeed be rolled out across government as well. Because um, there is a mindset, not least that, you know, increasingly coming from, from those coming into government, from a secular mindset, they don't get understand religion, which is such a huge issue. It's a global issue that isn't so much from our end of, of the telescope. So, so it's trying to develop better, better literacy. And that, that's, that's a hope, as well as 
the support in education programs, the wider literacy of trying to, you know, in Iraq, for example, there's some really good education programs that is helping uh, develop a new generation, and that's what we really want to do is inspire a new generation of people, of young young people, particularly in these countries that are challenged, to develop the understanding of the other and how one can respect people's beliefs and religions, and and building that up. Now that's a huge long-term issue. Um, but look, in climate change, there's been a whole lot of campaigning, not least from young people, that's developed some shifts and changes and challenges. And, you know, some people would have thought, no way is it going to be grabbed hold of. And, um, you know, I think this is of, of, you know, one doesn't want to do a hierarchy of importance, but I think it's right up there as a level of importance that we need to grab, grab, grab hold of for the sake of those young people who are growing up, not knowing and not being able to have life opportunities often because people don't have that fundamental respect for freedom of religion or belief. Well, it certainly sounds like there's enough there to keep you busy in your (laughs) part-time role. Um, And the MP that I work for here in Parliament actually came to the ministerial and said that um, it was a really valuable time and getting all those people in that room together to have those Mm. discussions and, I guess, hearing about the successes and then the different work that's being done across the globe. So for our listeners who might have well have known about the work of Open Doors before or other charities and actually might be resonating with everything you're saying and see the value... What more can they do? What more can we do here in the UK? Or is it more a challenge for um, Christians globally? Yeah. So it's a really good question. And, and um, so, yeah, Open Doors is Christian Solidarity Worldwide, Release International. Those are ones that come to mind particularly um, to, uh, to be connected. So I think we should be much more informed. You know, I mean, I'd ask listeners, how much are you praying for the persecuted, as we're called to do? Um, and... I said to myself as well, you know, there are good resources there to help us go through prayer diaries. Um, and um, I think it's all, I'd encourage listeners to get that level, that number of parliamentarians up beyond the 150 mark to contact your uh, member of parliament to ask them, if not, why not, being a member of the International Religious Freedom APPG. Um, and I think it just is, you know, I, as a former MP, you know, I. I would, would never understate the importance of a constituent. Uh, I know you'll work for them as well, but you probably wouldn't want me to say this. So you'd be you know, getting onto those emails and letters and getting into the surgery and developing a relationship with your Member of Parliament because it, it, is all, it is about relationships. You know, whatever one thinks about MPs, they do breathe and bleed and, are, and care about relationships like the rest of us. They're, they're humans. With, and, and to have a relationship with your MP that, that actually you know, shows that you care about... Um, a lot of issues and this is an issue which I think you know MPs will be rightly concerned about and so go and see them and talk to them about this and hopefully they can be an advocate particularly for those who are imprisoned prisoners of conscience need need advocacy and there's opportunities through the all-party parliamentary group website to um, to adopt a prisoner as of conscience and that'd be great for MPs to do that while they're looking and thinking about what to do over the summer. It's true. It's all quiet, isn't it? I guess, and they've got nothing to do. So <laughs> that's really interesting. Just to pivot, then, please slightly. Um, uh, so your your background, David, is yeah. you were a, a lawyer by by background before yeah. by coming into politics. Defending local villains, not all of them villains, most of them were. And so, as you say, so you were doing, you were doing criminal law. Um, how did that? shape your sense of justice yeah I mean some people would say 
um, a bit flippantly that you know being amongst lots of villains put me in a good place to go into Parliament. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. Um, so, but what it did do, um, yeah, yeah, acute sense of justice that kind of got me into politics. I just, just generally just seeing things that were unfair that I just had to do something about. Um, it gave me the opportunity professionally to do that. For those that you wouldn't want to ordinarily be speaking up for or representing, and to to show something of our Lord's. Uh, incredible overflowing love and uh, uh, and just sense of justice that that is so full of grace and you know whilst they wouldn't necessarily seen that the client but just to show them that I'm willing to advocate and be a voice for them and show some unconditionality in that plainly some of there's some conditions they weren't able to deceive the court and lie to the court and other things that were professionally but but nevertheless that sense of being willing to advocate on behalf of the others, even those that you don't necessarily wholly align yourself with, and to be able to do that, um, but also to want to see justice. You want to finally see justice served by all parts of the justice system. It brought me into close contact with uh, those that have gone through, who are dispossessed and marginalised, those who are dealing with issues of addictions, those who've been exploited, trafficked, um, and uh, so it made me perhaps shaped my politics. Perhaps some would say more unusually than others on the conservative side around issues around um, uh, refugees, immigration, detention, addictions um, and uh, but I see as a conservative those needs for empowerment of liberation of freedom and opportunity uh, for those that haven't seen that, to be given a second chance, mm-hmm. to be shown some a compassion, uh, to support those organisations that are so involved in rehabilitation um, and restoration and and those things that uh, so it meant that in parliament I kind of really went for those issues and saw frankly when I was reflecting back on a couple of things of being in parliament with all those files that I was able to big goodbye is many of them were recurring they were generational recurring issues people Mm. going back into the system and why was that and there were a few issues that I thought well I've got to do something about one of those was often issues of uh, families not there wasn't strong families around there particularly fathers there was issues around um, learning difficulties, particularly addictions, of opportunities to progress, and um, and so that those that I thought, well, okay, let's do something about that. Um, the first call I got when I was first elected, two thousand five, was from um, one of the most regular of of criminal clients who called me from Pentonville Prison and and said, yeah, "Congratulations, David! Great, fantastic, every there now. I'm here in the." Uh, drug-free wing of Pentafort and it's easier and cheaper for me to get crack cocaine heroin than outside and if you've got to do something about that and it's desperate and so that really those things kind of encourage me um, as well as just having a bit more of a, a, a practical insight and understanding of the criminal justice system so to get involved in legislation around criminal justice and most governments have a criminal justice bill pretty much every year that they throw out and just try and make sure it's based a bit on the reality of the system if I was going to speak slightly with my Labour hat Please on do. then, and um, I, so I guess I I would feel a little bit at the moment, and it's interesting you talk about you know people um, repeat offenders and recurring crime, and what are some of the causes of of that? Um, it seems to me at the moment, and I'm not asking you to defend the government's current um, trajectory in this because you're you're not in government, but it seems to me that there's not a problem in terms of um, crime that the current government doesn't think can be fixed with longer sentences and more punitive um, kind of punishment. Um, 
whatever that might be. And I wonder, you, A, whether you agree with that um, assessment, uh, and B, whether you think we have a, a justice system in this country which is concerned enough with the restorative. Mm. Yeah, so the, so there's a bit of good cop, bad cop in government at the moment. And indeed, the current Home Secretary um, does display that. So she'll get the headlines, and perhaps she's, you may say she's looking to appeal to a certain constituency that will want to see being tough. Um, now, I don't want to go down to the old, you know, tough on crime, tough on the cause of crime, but but never, never, <laughs> but never, someone said that once, but but nevertheless, um, let, it's just sometimes a bit of the what gets into public eye. So what gets less in the public eye that this government has put more than um, two successive governments into drug rehabilitation. They've put in a whole lot of investment, recognizing that far too much of previous governments is recycling. The, some of the symptoms, some of the cause of crime, which some of it involves issues of drugs uh, and alcohol addiction. And uh, and so they've really put a whole lot of investment into that to, you know, you, one may say just to plug the gaps that have been created from disinvestment, but also show their priority for rehabilitation. Um, and there are schemes around restoration. Now, there, there's perhaps it's less talked about, you know, in the times of the Cameron government, you'd perhaps have seen much more about that, the hug the hoodie stuff and everything. Mm. Um, but... Um, um, it depends who you talk to in that government. You know, famously, uh, Cameron talked about hug the hoodie, and David Davis, who's then the shadows of Home Secretary, talked about what's your view about hug the hoodie? He said, "I like to, I'll hug the hoodie, but just a bit tighter <laughs> and tighter than um, than um, David Cameron." But, but nevertheless, um, you know, so we just have to be look sometimes beneath the headlines, and and there is um, there is the heart there to help rehabilitation. And the other thing I, I've been really excited about, which successive governments struggle to do is get real and get serious about education when those are when particularly young people are in custody so they've now invested in and they're in the first you know first colleges you know with excellent teachers um, helping not just do a derisory hour or so kind of education but a proper schooling and education to get, develop the, the life skills for people who are locked up so those things don't get all the headlines but nevertheless those have been rolled out by this government so yeah. So, um, so just um, yeah. So I'd, I'd, I'd encourage. There's a different side. There's the good cop and the bad cop. Um, I, I think yeah. From my point of view, I would um, I would say that uh, you know that there is there is a there's a place for those longer sentences, but it, it has to come with recognizing that the, the recycling of short term prisoners that don't have the time to rehabilitate. Mm. We have to get better how we use smart technology, as indeed I think they're starting to do. I mean, there were serious problems with the, the previous lack of supervision and, and, the, and the way the probation service was, was had, you know, had the, um, uh, were completely um, uh, challenged by the previous, you know, previous payment by results system that came out. And we, I mean, we've got to do better at um, investing rehabilitation in prison and outside. But also, I think, you know, as a Christian, we should also ensure that we um, we punish better in the sense that I think it should be based more on reparation, more on restoration, and that rather than just simply locking up people up, um, there's a way that we can learn from the Bible that, uh, which involves proper um, reparation. I was involved in um, helping to ensure that you know at each time that anyone is uh, sentenced, they all have to be obliged to look at the issue of compensation, reparation, and restoration. That's a key element of justice, which also includes elements of retribution as well, of ensuring there's just desserts. But it has to go alongside 
a really key reparation that, that continues that ensures some degree of recompense to victims uh, and restoration. So all those elements get less of a less of a headline, but they're still there, just about they're there, and there's some good elements, but there's some elements that we could do a lot better with, yeah. So you see I've got a real continued passion for that yeah, yeah. area. And the, the thing that I would have to call out, not least because there's been some of my um, former colleagues on the, on, the, on, the, on the criminal justice system campaigning and about funding for legal aid, mm. is that one can't ignore, in terms of public service and funding, the importance of legal aid and that make the system has been you know has been serious disinvestment for the service of advocacy whether it's in the criminal or family court that you know we have to do that we you know we we, we must do that on behalf of the other on behalf of those that we don't necessarily want to ideally support but ensure there's a system that advocates for pe- for the, for folk that um, that need access to justice because we we've, we've had such a good history of access to justice in this country and that's a fundamental right we're talking about fundamental rights that we've got to be precious about and ensure gets because it won't get the high list of priorities in polling about what do you want to invest in public services you know do you want to invest in advocacy for um, habitual criminal you know rather than put money into hip operations and social care but we have to do that and you know actually MPs have to be bold and show leadership um, you know, we've just had prayers here. One of the things I love about the prayers here is that it, it prays for prayers that we don't just simply please. There's a desire to please too often in politics. Obviously, you want to please your elect, you want to get elected again, but, but if it's based wholly on desire to please, that's not good leadership. Mm. And, you know, we're talking about leadership, it's in the public eye. We've got to show service for the common good. And the common good must mean, you know, putting some money, public money in for those that we don't particularly like personally necessarily, but need the right of access to justice and other things. So, so that's um, that's of ongoing interest. And just to wrap up, um, you just mentioned about leadership there, yeah. and um, I won't ask you who you prefer for the um, leadership election. Um, but what do you hope to see in either in the person that um, was going to take over from Boris Johnson, or what do you hope to see going forward? As, as a country um, within our leadership that's yeah. perhaps, a, a, perhaps a change from what we've had or, or perhaps not. Yeah, so we're just here on we speaking, we've got Prime Minister's questions is just there, the last questions for Boris Johnson as Prime Minister. And um, and we should reflect on the, one, the big reasons why he lost. There's lots of, lots of examples of reasons that built up of why he lost, but fundamentally it was about character and standards and conduct. And as Christian, I'm, I was, I'm quite excited. I was quite excited by the leadership election because this is a different leadership election from previous ones. You know, those looking on to the sort of psychodrama of conservative leadership elections, I think it's all just the same old thing. And, and particularly when you look at hustings of them trying to, you know, take a slice of each other. But, but I'd hope and expect that, um, and hope with them when it goes to members, that it's about what brought down Boris Johnson, which was a lack of integrity, a lack of honour and standards that we expect from all our leaders and so I just hope that there's a rise to the top of wanting to show truthfulness, honesty, um, yes compassion because this is what you know our Lord Jesus Christ shows in leadership you know that compassion with his indifference, the truth when there's some lies, the you know the service of others, um, humility rather than pride and power grabbing all those things I'd be looking for as a matter of you know, of what our, our leaders should be about rather than 
their particular policy thing on tax or it matters and um, security issues and others. All these things are important. Um, so that's what we're looking forward to. And let's see who rises to the top um, on those issues of principle. Yeah, we'll all find out in not not so distant future. Um, wow, thank you so much for your time, David, and for coming to speak to us. It's really interesting to hear. And I think we've certainly haven't had discussions about the freedom of religion and belief stuff, so I'm sure there'll be people who are so fascinated by what we've been talking about. So thank you very much. Thank you. Super duper. Well, thank you, David. He's gone now, but we, I extend my thanks to him again. Um, that was a fun chat. Did you enjoy that, Beth? Yeah, so good. I haven't met David before. Um, and so I feel like he was so kind with us, shared so much of his story and some really interesting um, experiences as well to do with being an MP and the freedom of religion and belief stuff. Amazing. So, uh, yes, he mentioned this conference that um, has just been running in London um, and you actually managed to go along to one or two of the events of that conference how did you find that yeah so I got to go to some of the fringe events so around a big conference like this with so many charities and organizations that want to input and that want to um, celebrate the same topic um, and host sessions that they kind of happen around it so fringe events I went to a few um, really really interesting um, the ones I went to were primarily hosted by um, Christian groups partnered with the humanist um, groups as well. And that was such a fascinating way to do it because they were talking about the challenges that people are facing with faith and the challenges people are facing precisely because they don't have any faith. Mm-hmm. And I guess it's something that I knew must be a challenge for people, but they did share people um, did share their stories as part of those like seminars. There's one woman particularly just sharing how um, through her like publicly on social media sharing the fact that she doesn't have any faith and is not ashamed of that and um, has chosen to step out of the religion of the country that she's from, that actually the, the brutal backlash that she experienced because of that, I guess I hadn't realised how much that can literally ruin your life from stepping away from like, established faith and having to move from the country and to completely leave her life behind because of that. Yeah, it does put things in perspective, doesn't it? And, and, and but we only live the lives that we live. And being a Christian in the day-to-day life in, in England in 2022, no doubt have its challenges and you'll be confronted with different things from day to day. But it's I think it is important to just take a moment and go, well, we actually, we really are protected and we really are um, safe in many, many ways. Um, what was it like sharing, you know, being in that space with um, Christians and, and non-Christians alike, um, ultimately all working towards the same goal? Did you, did you find that a moving experience? I was surprised, I should have expected it, but the amount of cohesion in the room, because ultimately the goal is a world where people are free to express their beliefs and religion, uh, whatever they might be, and... Honestly, I just found it almost strange to be talking with these these groups who have given so much of these people's careers and lives and research and funding um, to try and just make a slight dent in a huge issue that I don't really ever think about. Um, and to hear the passion that people had for this issue and um, 
And as David mentioned, the just the sheer number of people who experience persecution that I did, I was really struck by that and I guess moved by the scale of the problem and these groups choosing, I guess, to put their differences aside to, I guess, try and find some common ground. Um, I think there is interesting, especially when it's perhaps different religious groups persecuting each other in turn in different countries and then they're trying to find a way forward whilst acknowledging that um, there is extremism on many on all sides. So yeah. I think that's like naturally a tension. Um, I noticed that especially in one of the Nigeria seminars I went to, um, but they still were able to say, well, this is what we want to be and sort of aim for together. Yeah, I mean, that is hard. And again, I think we're in a privileged position in this country where as as Christians, we're not in any kind of specific way being persecuted by another religious group. And I hope, you know, it, it, well, I do think it's true to say that that there is no persecution of any religion in a in a formal way in, in this country, either in terms of, you know, being led by one side or the other. And I mentioned earlier, um, meeting this group from a Christian charity who were there because of the Forbes event. And they were talking about some of the persecution of religion that was going on in Mexico and how it would be different from region to region. And in some areas, you've got Protestant majority persecuting Catholics. And in more cases, you've got Catholic majority persecuting um, Protestants or um, the indigenous people. And, and that really kind of, I found that quite confronting. and emotional to think you know actually not that far away from us in the grand scheme of things there are there are christians persecuting christians and and um there are christians persecuting uh indigenous groups and then if you look you know the other side of the globe there there are christians um being persecuted by by other religions or by um secular states and so yeah once again it, it puts things in real perspective I think one of the things I found most moving in this last year working for JPIT is um, the letter that JPIT put together uh, with partners of over a thousand faith leaders responding to the Nationality and Borders Bill and the changes that was making to asylum seeking in this country. Um, and over a thousand signatures from, from faith leaders across many major um, religions, including uh, our own churches, uh, other churches, uh, other capital C churches, so um, outside of the denominations of JPIT, but also uh, Muslims and, and Jews signing it as well. And I, I just think, to me, that was a really powerful expression of solidarity, of what we can do when we work collaboratively um, with people across civil society, Um and allow ourselves to be defined in some ways by our common values, at least when we're working together, rather than by our, our differences. So, uh, yeah, that to me was, is one of the things that um, JPIT's done this year that has I've found incredibly um, powerful. Yeah, so one other thing that David talked about was his swift removal from office and... Um, I just thought I was so glad that he was happy to share that with us um, and how that snap election just changed his life and mm. the loss of his seat. 
we don't really think about the risk of that for MPs and for their staff and how he then had to just find his next thing. And it, something he said that that was really interesting was that pain of unfinished business, how he lost his role in the election and was defeated and you know, had a couple of months to try and get himself sorted financially, but then had to process the things that he had tried to accomplish for his constituents and for the country, that then suddenly he was unable to continue that work. I can really see how challenging that would be, especially if you feel like God's placed you in a role to, for a purpose to accomplish things, and suddenly mm. you can't keep doing that. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine it is very disorientating. And he, and look, he's had a few years to process it now, but he he spoke about it in really good humour and, and with real nuance. And I, I think what comes across is that David was definitely being driven. Clearly, in our conversation, it came across to me that what was motivating him, why he was in uh, politics in the first place, was because he felt called to it and he felt it was service. When you're orientated that way round, yeah, of course it's going to hurt. And of course, on a human level, it's going to do, you know, it's going to do something to your ego when you lose or when you don't get what you want. But it did seem that actually his contentment that he was, that there was a wider, greater reason for doing what he was doing served as something of, as a, of a parachute for him. Um, and I think that can be really powerful. And, and it's a challenge to us to, to say, you know, how am I orientating my life? What's, what's driving my decisions? What's driving my priorities? Um, and I think it's a, it's a good challenge for us and it's a good thing to be reminded of and then but also to be realistic with ourselves as, as human beings and say yeah of course it's going to bloody hurt when when you put yourself out there and you lose or or you feel a certain amount of rejection and just on a human level that's going to be really tough so and I think I think David spoke really um really profoundly and uh humbly about that thank you so much to everyone who's listened to this episode we love that you tuned in. I hope you found it interesting and informative. Yeah, all the best. Bye. Bye bye.